Well, I would invite you now to turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And as you know, we're going through um, a number of psalms, not all of them, but a number of them this summer. And uh, there is there's something wonderful about the psalms that maybe other passages of Scripture um, do not provide. Um, and are we supposed to dismiss the kids? All right. Hey, kids and teachers, get out of here. We want to see you have a great time, all right? Um, wow. Right, you don't all have to go. You know, that's okay, but some of you can stay. Um, excited to see all the pitter-patter of feet going out there. It's encouraging. Let me get, invite you then to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, and in particular, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And let's stand together. Uh, we are going to read this psalm and then see what the Lord has for us, okay? All right. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, this morning we have been singing songs about your name. We have been desiring to come before you and praise you for who you are, because you are worthy of our praise. And Lord, this morning, even as we look at a psalm that declares that, may we seek to understand, Lord, the reasons why we can do that and why we should do that and why we are able to do that, Lord. So we come to you this morning wanting to praise you even in our time in the Word this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would give us humility, that you would um, give us hearts that are willing to receive your truth, and Lord, I ask, especially as your messenger, that I would simply be your mouthpiece and faithfully proclaim your truth to your people. And Lord, if there are those here that do not know you, the Lord, that they would be in awe of the majesty of your gospel and humble themselves before you. Give us wisdom and strength, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as Psalm, Psalms 3 through 7 indicate for us, David, the man after God's own heart, has been going through some extremely difficult and trying times. His son Absalom had conspired against his father David to take his throne. And we find David on the run for his life out in the wilderness with a, a horde of his servants, and by that I mean soldiers and people that are there to support him. And we read in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, the following. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Uh, we want to get our minds out of this picture that David is still mighty and running around the wilderness and he's, you know, no, this was a hard time. This was a devastating time. His family has turned against him. People have turned against him. His loyal servants in many cases have turned against him. And now he's running for his life and he's weeping and he's mourning before God. And then we read a little bit later in 2 Samuel 16 about a man called Shimei who appears as David nears a town called Behurim and he throws stones at David and he curses him. And here's what we read. This is what he says. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. 
the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. It just continues. I mean, this, this bad day, these bad circumstances just get worse for David. So in Psalm 3-7, through what we've seen is, is David uh, listing out some psalms for us, and there is some progression going on in these psalms. These are all reflecting a time of great distress. His son has turned against him to usurp his throne. He's crying out for God to save him. He is pleading with God to, to lead him in his righteousness and to destroy his enemies. He looks deep within to consider his own sinfulness and he pleads for God not to rebuke him or discipline him, but to hear his plea and to accept his prayer. And he's weary and groaning and, and flooding his bed with tears and drenching his couch with weeping. But he knows that Yahweh is his refuge. And he knows that the enemy is like a lion wanting to tear him apart. And so he places himself before God to judge his righteousness, his innocence. And to find him innocent. And then to judge according to that finding his enemies who are guilty and who oppress him. And at the end of Psalm 7, verse 17 he finishes up with this. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Lord Most High. Friends, in the midst of a deep, frightening, highly emotional and dangerous time, David keeps turning his gaze toward Yahweh. And he is fighting to be thankful and to sing praises to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And what does praise look like? That's what we find in Psalm 8. Friends, can you be thankful and praise God when your world has turned upside down? Is he only your God and worthy of praise when you are healthy and wealthy and prosperous? Or is he just as much your God in the times of great trial and difficulty and suffering and despair? Here in Psalm 8, we find David turning to God in praise out of his difficult circumstances. Now briefly, we want to just highlight something about the title and then just the structure of the psalm that will help us move along with what David is saying. First of all, just notice the title. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, the psalm of David. So we know that David is writing this. But we don't know what a Giddeth is. It could be an instrument. It could be... Um, a particular rhythm or melody that the, the choir uh, master is, is, is going to be actually singing the song and leading this with. But one thing is sure, this is a psalm of praise. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Albert was preaching and he was walking you through the fact that even in the genre of the psalms, there are different genres of psalms. And he, he honed in on the psalms of lament. Here we have what's called a psalm of praise. In fact, the very same title can be found in Psalm 81 and Psalm 84, and both of those are psalms of praise also. So this is a psalm of praise. Secondly, notice the structure. Take note of how it's working together. We have here in verses 1 and verse 9 a similar statement. This is a top and tail, often called an inclusio, because they bracket what is, what is going to be said here. And what, the, the, what that tool does is it helps then the person who's writing it, as well as the people who are singing it, understand and be aware of what it is that the author is driving at. What is David driving at here? He wants all who sing this psalm to know that the name of the Lord, our Lord, is majestic in all the earth. Is that something 
that you can say. The Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Is that a praise that you offer him? Let's break down this refrain to understand it a little bit more. First of all, notice it's O Lord, but those word Lord is in caps. So this is a reference to the word Yahweh, God's personal name, our personal God. But don't think of God's being a personal God in kind of a a mystical, emotional sense. He's a personal God because he has covenanted with us. When he said, I am that I am, he was declaring who he was, but he's also coming and condescending and covenanting with us. This is Yahweh. And so when Yahweh here, here is a picture of all of the fullness of who he is in his deity. He is a full and sovereign creator God who keeps his promises to us. So we have this, O Lord, then there's our Lord. This is our Adonai. The word there is master or Lord. It's a title, not so much a name. David can only say this because his Lord is Yahweh. He is Yahweh, but he's also master. He is our ruler. So putting it all together, David is saying, oh, Yahweh, our sovereign Lord and master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Third, what is this name? What does he talk about? What is your, when we talk about, you know, sing it, be it to your name. When the, when the scripture talks about the name of God, it's talking about everything that God is, his reputation. It's often used synonymously with the word glory. This is everything that God is. This is, this is who he is that is on display. So David is saying, Yahweh, you are our creator, master, who is near to us and close to us, and at the same time, gloriously majestic in all the earth. And then the fourth part here, this word majestic. What what does it mean? It's a hard word to capture in our English language. But you could say something like how mighty or how great or how lofty or how high, how splendid, how glorious, how magnificent is your name. (laughs) These are all words used to describe just the, the fact that God is so far beyond us. So glorious, so amazing, and yet he is our Lord. Friends, there's there's so much to be thankful for just in this statement here of praise. So, on the one hand, David knows that God's, he knows God's name is far more majestic than he can ever comprehend or understand. And that means that on the other hand, He doesn't really know. He can only wonder. And when we talk about God being these things, these are words to describe things that we can't comprehend. Now notice that verse 1 and verse 9 are not questions. He's not saying, oh Lord, our Lord, you know, how majestic is you? Well, he's pretty majestic. No, no, no. This is a statement. This is a declaration. Okay? We're given reasons now between verses 1 and 9 as to why that is true or why David can praise. So to say it a little differently, this psalm explains why David is delighting in the majesty of God. And friends, my my plea with you this morning from this psalm is that you would walk out of here with a fresh awareness of why you can delight in him. But it's not just delight in him. See, we don't know if this psalm is expressed while David is enduring his trial or after he's been restored to his rightful place as king. Either way, surely David had much to be thankful for, didn't he? And we see him, even in the the previous psalms, seeking to praise God, seeking to turn to God, seeking to make sure that his his weather vane is pointed in the right direction to his God. And friends, it's a reminder to all of us that God remains worthy of our praise, even when life is difficult, even 
uh, to the point of fear and weeping. And so in verses 1a, or 1b, I should say, through verse 8, David gives us four reasons why he is praising God. Four reasons why he is delighting in the majesty of God. I'll quickly give you uh, at least the summary of them. God's strength, God's care, God's revelation, and God's plan. First of all, I want you to notice God's astonishing strength. David is delighting in the majesty of God because of God's astonishing strength. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. We know, we know that God is majestic. We know that he's strong and he sets his glory above the heavens. He's beyond our comprehension. He is above the heavens. But now, David gives us a vivid picture of man's ultimate weakness and frailty in the face of man's strongest power. On the one side, you have enemies, foes, avengers. On the other side, you have babies and infants declaring the glory of God to still the enemy. It's a striking picture, isn't it? It's a a powerful contrast. Take the worst, the most hateful, the most brutish of God's enemies who stand shaking their fists at God and and, and impacting the followers of God. And then God then chooses to answer that demonstration of power from humanity by saying, I've got infants and babies that are going to declare my glory. And this is strength. Just think about it. It's incredible. I mean, last Sunday, obviously a different Sunday, thinking about this text, and I was thinking about the Roe versus Wade ruling, and I thought to myself, boy, there's a bunch of God's creation that are praising Him. And we won't even hear the sounds of that praise. Here we have babies and infants. And what do these babies, or who do these babies and infants represent? Us, God's children. Isn't that how you feel at times? I mean, the world is so powerful and strong and they're, they're oppressive and they're, they're against God. And, and what can we do? There's only so much that we can do and just feel like helpless. You feel weak in the face of God's foes, yet it is out of the mouth of these babies and infants that God establishes strength. See what he's saying. Those who are gods, who are weak and insignificant, are the ones whom God uses to establish strength. But God declares His majestic glory through the weakness of humanity who stand in the face of the most powerful of humanity. Dale Ralph Davis says it well, very simply, what seems inconsequential has overwhelmed what is mighty. So what is the strength that comes out of the mouths of infants and babes? What could they possibly say that would be strong? I would say, my understanding here is that the strength that that comes out of the mouths of infants and babes is the strength of praise. What do God's children do in the face of brutes and enemies? What do they do when the enemy seeks to intimidate or destroy? They praise God for His majesty. The praise of the weak silences the might of God's enemies. You see that? Infants and babies declaring to still the enemies. It's amazing. 
The enemy says, I've knocked them down. Certainly they will give up on God now, but God's children fight through their troubles to delight and praise in the majesty of God. And it stops the enemy. It stills the enemy. They cannot comprehend it. Just think, friends, about the power of praise for a minute. And by that, I am not talking about much of today's emotionally charged, experience-oriented praise. I'm talking about the true, genuine praise that comes from the hearts and lips of those who, like David, find themselves in the depths of trial and despair, and yet bow their knee before their sovereign God to give him praise for his sovereignty and his faithfulness, for his goodness and his providential plan, for his forgiveness and wisdom, for his counsel and for his comfort. Weak, powerless, yet children of the Most High God. So for example, they find out they have cancer and they respond This trial is going to be scary. It's going to be challenging and it's going to be long, but God will be with me. He hasn't abandoned me. God is giving me an opportunity to uniquely give him praise. That's what God's children do. We're not saying we ignore the rough side of the trial, but we understand that the trial is the means for praise. They find out that their loved one is dying or has died. They are grieving. They're despondent. They are experiencing loss, but they fight to delight in God's majesty. Just like one of my high school friends that I happened to notice on Facebook um, this week, her husband is in the hospital. He had a stroke, and so she responded on there by saying this, thank you all for your kindness and prayers. God answered but not the answer I wanted. My Davy is now home on hospice care. I am loving him and taking every moment we are given, praying for peace and comfort. Our God is an awesome God, and he has us in his hands. This is what God's people do in the midst of their trial and suffering. They don't whine. They don't complain. Well, maybe they do. (laughs) But they fight to give God praise. And this is the strength that we have, friends. We're like babies, helpless, dependent, impotent. But we know God. We know his character. And so we turn to him in thankful, adoring praise. And friends, in times of great opposition and trial, this is what Christians do. Christians praise him. Sometimes the mightiest weapon in God's arsenal is not argument or brilliance or eloquence or philosophy. It is heart-wrenching praise. Therefore, we delight in God's majesty. We praise his glorious name. Why? Because of his astonishing strength. (laughs) I don't know how anyone else handles it. But because we have God, he gives us an astonishing strength that stills the enemy. Secondly, I want you to notice God's attentive care, verses 3 through 4. David says, when I look into the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So David, having considered man's weakness, now evaluates man in the context of God's masterful creation. And when David considers God's magnificent creation, he is left in awe and wonder about God's attentive care of man. And he begins with the wonder of God's creation, right? He describes God's creation. It's it's your heavens. 
It's, it's the work of your fingers. You can just see God at work with his hands and his fingers doing what he does with his creative powers. You have set in place the moon and the stars. This is, this is all God's doing, right? So David looks up in awe of what he sees as God's creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So vast, so beautiful, so powerful, so majestic, so grand. And he recognizes that this is all the work of God, and it is truly majestic. Maybe David's standing on a hillside in the the dark of night, and he's he's looking up into the, the sky, and he sees the stars, and he sees the constellations, and he's thinking in his mind what he eventually writes in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge, right? I mean, there's a declaration coming from heaven. (laughs) And he's reminded that God's creation preaches the knowledge and the glory of God. Have you ever gone camping? Away from the city, out in the middle of nowhere, and when it's just pitch black at night and you just sit out on a chair and you look up into the sky, especially here in California, and it's just peppered with stars all over the place. And all you can hear are crickets, someone snoring, and maybe a coyote howling, but apart from that, it's quiet and it's majestic. That's what David is, is wanting us to imagine, to be in awe of what we see. Have you ever been to places in God's creation where you, are, where you see spectacular views or experience incredible power? I lived in Buffalo, New York, which is not the greatest view that you would want to go see, but near Buffalo, New York, is this thing called Niagara Falls. And you go up and you just see Niagara Falls, and Niagara Falls is an incredible place. Yes, it's beautiful, but more than that, you feel the power of this water going over the falls. And part of you, when you're standing there watching, is mesmerized by it. You you feel like you should be going with the water. It's incredible. I'm sure many of you have been to Yosemite Valley. I remember when I was a teenager coming here for the first time and going to Yosemite Valley. I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. That's from the bottom looking up, and then I was able to go to the top. I didn't climb El Capitan or the dome or whatever it's called, but we were up high and looking down. It was just, it was magnificent. I think we just get too desensitized about it because we live so close to it. But it's an incredible place. This past month, I was in Kauai, and we took this drive up by Waimea Canyon to, to this, this end point. I think it's a Pu'u Okila lookout, which allows you to look over this this northern coast of Hawaii, and it's stunning, and it's amazing, these beautiful beaches. Just This is God's creation. It's just incredible. And this past week, uh, I I was in Bolivia, of all places, and went to this place called the Uyuni Salt Flats, which are like at 12,000 feet and 4,000 square miles of just salt flats. We drove 90 minutes to get not even into the heart of it all. And one of the things that happens there is when it rains, it's like you're driving on a mirror. We went to an area where there was water, three inches of water, salt, and you're driving, and it was just absolutely stunningly beautiful. Couldn't even imagine a place like that. Now, friends, I say all that to say this. I'm sure we could all add other places and experience to that list, but the bottom line is that Even God's fallen creation is vast and beautiful and powerful and majestic and grand. And that's what David wants us to see. He wants us to see God's handiwork, his creation, how vast and beautiful and majestic it is because he wants now to continue with the majesty of God's care of his children. So David's so overwhelmed that he burst out with the logical statement here, What is man? Now, this is not a question. He's not saying, well, then, if that's true, then what is man? He's looking at all creation, and he is in awe that God would even pay attention 
to little old significant man. Why would he even consider man? What is man compared to all that? How marvelous that in God's vast creation, he would take an interest in us. Now, I want us to do something right now. A little bit different, a little bit strange. But I want you all to close your eyes. I'm not going to hypnotize you, I promise you, okay? Close your eyes. But I want you to, I want you to take this all in. In your mind's eye, with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine as best you can the vastness of the universe. Just take it all. What do you see? It's just space, right? And then as you're, as you're thinking about that, I want your mind's eye to go to what we call the Milky Way, the galaxy that includes our solar system. Just kind of settle in there, whatever that imagination looks like to you. And then in that Milky Way, I want you to travel in your mind's eye to the solar system made up of one sun and over 200 moons and nine planets, Pluto, Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Earth, Venus, and Mercury. And then I want you to kind of get off the train, so to speak, and find yourself at Earth with its north and south poles spinning on its axis, with its, its vast continents. And then, and then find yourself in the continent of America, North and, and Central and South America, and then into the United States of America with its, its 50 states, although two of them are not necessarily there, right? But the, the 48 states, and then California with its mountains and valleys and its oceans and beaches and forests and deserts. And then come to the Bay Area. And just think about the North Bay with Vallejo and Napa and the South Bay with San Jose and Cupertino and the peninsula with San Francisco and here in the East Bay with Oakland and Castro Valley, Hayward and here to San Lorenzo. I mean, you're bringing it all down. And then here to First Southern Baptist Church. It's on the corner of 238 and Hesperian Boulevard. And then the very pew that you're sitting in. And then you, out of all creation and 7.96 billion other people who live on this planet, get this, God knows you and Jesus comforts our heart, telling us that our Father truly cares for us and he reinforces that by saying, even the very hairs on our head are all numbered. Right, you can open your eyes now. But you, you see what just happened there. I mean, we, we take it in the vastness of creation. And God cares about man. And he cares about you. See, so do you see what David is getting at? He is in awe and wonder that insignificant man living in such a magnificent creation would captivate God's gaze. That the sovereign creator of the universe would be so attentive to care for man, to care for little old me. What is man that God would stoop so low? That's what David wants us to see. But friends, get this. He is attentive. He does care. Do you understand the significance of what David is saying and experiencing? When your enemies are pursuing you to kill you, guess what? He's attentive and he cares. When your children turn against you, God knows and he cares. When you are overwhelmed as a parent and are at your wit's end not knowing what to do, your heavenly Father, Yahweh, your Lord, he's attentive, he knows, and he cares. When things are unstable at work and you don't know if you'll still have a job, when you, you get a COVID test and it turns out to be positive, when you and your spouse are having blow-up conflict and you're in hopeless despair, your Lord, your God is attentive. He knows and he cares. And David reminds us that God is attentive and he cares, yes. And that is another reason why he delights in the majesty of God. We do not deserve that attentive care. 
compared to everything else that God has created. Man is insignificant. Man is small. The third reason David now delights in the the majesty of God is God's affirming revelation. So how is it that David can be so confident that God pays attention and cares for such a weak and insignificant part of creation? Well, the answer to that question can be found in verses 5 through 8, which are really simply a, a, a miniature summary of Genesis 1, 26 through 31. This is what it says, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the the livestock and over the earth and over the creeping things that creeps on the earth. But friends, we live in a world that has has a variety of views about man or mankind that shape our culture. I'm thankful for Dale Davis and some of his summary of, of these things. I would like to add to them, but uh, let me give you a list of, of a few of them. First of all, there's paganism. And by paganism, I don't necessarily mean what you might think of paganism today, but the kind of paganism that was taking place during David's day. Here's what the man on the street would likely say. When I look into the heavens, the moon and the stars, I fall down and worship them. For I believe they represent powers of the universe. They are capricious and unpredictable, yet I am caught in their crunch, for they control my fate. In other words, in this paganism, man is a slave to the gods. He is a garbage man, a janitor, serving the gods and the powers that may be. Paganism. Nihilism. Man is nothing. He's only a piece of flickering warm rubbish at the dump as important as a newborn maggot inside your garbage can on a hot summer day. No one really cares for him. Humanism. Man is what I want him to be. Man is not bound by tradition, religion, or moral restraint, but ultimately... He is alone, and he's desperate to find meaning. So he strives to be something in this empty world. What a horrible place to be. Evolution. Man is a product of a long evolutionary development. He survived only because of his intellect, wisdom, and strength. The abortionist. Man is just a piece of flesh that has no rights until and unless I think he is viable or she is viable or it is viable to have rights. But then there's the biblical account. Man is weak. Seen that. Man is insignificant. We've seen that. Yet, he is made in the image of God and crowned with glory and honor. Now, friends, that is an affirming revelation. We know we're weak. We know we're insignificant. We haven't crowned ourselves with glory and honor. We haven't made ourselves in the likeness of God. In fact, we make God in our likeness. See, we're not slaves. We're not garbage men. We're not alone. We're not pieces of flesh. We're not the product of evolution. We are weak and insignificant, but royal, crowned with glory and honor. Now, we can only boast in that because it's what God has done in creating mankind. We don't walk around saying, well, look at me. No, look, God's done this. So how is it that David can have so much confidence that God is attentive and cares for man? The simple answer is because the Bible says so. And that's why we 
go back to that passage in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And we have it then here in miniature, right? Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Have you noticed how often in our world man's royal status is being undermined by the humanist and the evolutionist and the naturalist? Let me give you a few examples. One of my favorite far side comments has three frames to it. In the first frame, there are these cows that are standing together, like having conversation, almost like they're having um, having cocktails together, that kind of thing. We're very sophisticated. We're cows. Yes, we're, you know, we're talking, right? And off to the side, you see a little bit road, and you see a cow go, car, all right? The next frame, you see cows, and they're on the ground. They're chewing the cud, you know, they're mooing, you know. Car goes by, next frame, they're back up talking and having all this stuff. Right? In other words, it, it, it's kind of this idea that, 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 you know, animals actually are far more sophisticated than they are, right? Well, all you have to do is look at some of the stories and the movies and stuff like that that we have in our world to see, see that those things also bear out, right? I mean, you guys know the, the story Animal Farm. I understand it's, 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 it's using a farm to talk about some political issues. But again, animals are speaking, right? Uh, you remember Wilbur, for some of you older people. Right. What about Lassie and Flipper? I mean, Lassie just barked and Flipper just went, eh, 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 right, whatever he does. And Flipper was a, was a, um, a dolphin, thank you. But in, in, in those stories, the Lassie and Flipper stories, um, adult humans were ignorant people, idiots, really. The dog and the dolphin, they were the smart ones, right? Remember the stories. Even Disney and Pixar with Mickey and Minnie and Goofy and Donald Duck. And I just kind of went down a list. Kung Fu Panda, Madagascar, The Jungle Book, Ice Age, Finding Nemo, Babe. Animals, they're saying, do talk. And they're just like humans. No, animals don't talk like us. They don't live in houses like us. They don't drive cars like us. They don't fly in planes like us. They're animals who function according to the instinct that God has given them. But our society brings, elevates them up. I know, you know, some of these things are, are done out of fun and it's cute and all that kind of stuff. But, but you understand, there's this idea that if, you, if you're feeding on this kind of stuff, you have this idea that animals are just like us. But friends, that's not what Scripture says. Animals are not crowned with glory and honor. And then there's the PBS specials, where the commentator is doing all he or she can to give human thoughts, emotions, and behaviors to the animal for, that's being filmed. Here comes the father eagle. He's coming back from a hard day of work at the office. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And he lands on the nest. The mother eagle is so thankful to have him home because it's been a hard day with the kiddos trying to take care of them. And so she can now rest. But the kiddos are beep, 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 beep. Oh, yes, daddy's home now and he's brought dinner, right? Now I'm going to give you dinner. And a little later, mommy and daddy are going to tuck you in before you go to bed. This is the human commentator taking what is being filmed and, and filling it in with human attributes and behaviors. You see that? Friends, this is what God says. I'll just say it again. Man has been made a little lower than the heavenly beings being angels. Man has been crowned with glory and honor. There is a royalty to man that is unique every other creature. Man has been given dominion over creation, the works of God's hand. Man has put all things under his feet. Sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, they are all 
under the dominion of mankind. My friends, that's what God says. That's what Scripture reveals. That is the royal dignity that Yahweh the Lord and Master puts on weak and insignificant men. That's us. That's your children. That is the child in the womb. I mean, you thought about the fact when Jesus was incarnated, that he didn't wait to be born before he became man. He became man at the moment of conception. He was fully a person at the moment of conception. Why? Man is crowned with glory and honor. And friends, this is what David now presses the sovereign God of the universe for. He praises God for his affirming and clarifying revelation as to the nature and the standing of weak, insignificant man. His royalty is made in the likeness of God. Friends, that's something to praise him for. You might have a dog, you might love that dog. But your dog is not your family. It's a gift from God for you to enjoy. And likely Foofy won't be in heaven. I could be wrong there, so don't go out crying, okay? But I want you to notice the fourth thing, and this is a little bit... um, Future looking through the psalm. I want you to focus in on verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. David is praising God for ultimately his amazing plan. See, David's praise anticipates God's amazing plan to put all things under his feet in Christ. We begin to see the connection between this psalm and its fulfillment in Christ, in Jesus' encounter with the chief priests and the scribes in the temple in Matthew chapter 21, I think it's also found in Luke, but Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16, where Matthew says this, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says to them, Psalm 8. You have never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies. You have prepared what? Praise. Get this, infants and babies can't talk, but they can praise. (laughs) They can declare that Jesus is the Son of God. This is what Jesus is saying, at least. The weakest of mankind gives glory to God. They declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David. And then in the book of Hebrews, The author is describing Jesus as Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And here's what we read. For it it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, what we need to understand here is that although God created man in his own image, although he crowned him with glory and honor, something happened in the garden. 
Adam and Eve sinned against God. And they were ushered out of the garden. And there is a need for that position to be restored. And that position to be restored can only come through the second Adam. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's what the writer of Hebrews here is talking about. He's saying he came to this earth a little lower than the angels. And under him, under him, man's struggle will be restored. Now, ultimately, he's talking about what Jesus does at the cross. See, man right now doesn't have everything under his feet. But when the Lord returns in glory, everything will be under his feet. The enemies will be under the feet of the conqueror. And that's why it says, at present we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus. See, our hope is in Jesus. We're living in a fallen world. We're living in a place where we're supposed to have full dominion, full control, full authority over all of these areas, and yet we've lost it because of sin. And it's only Jesus that can come and restore it. Now, he restores it through the cross, but he ultimately restores it when he comes and establishes himself on this earth one again. Saying this man Jesus will be the one to restore all things. He will put everything in subjection under his feet. Friends, weak, insignificant man who was made in the image of God and crowned with glory and honor will one day be restored in and through Christ. That is our royal future. Friends, that is an amazing plan that is worthy of our worship. And David says, it is God's strength, God's care, God's revelation, and God's plan that causes him to delight in the majesty of God so that he can declare once again, the Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, Three brief concluding thoughts. Number one, God uses your praise amidst your trials and weakness to declare his glory and to draw people to himself. Friends, let that sink in. Your suffering, your trial, your tribulation, your heartache, your sorrow, they're all platforms for genuine praise to your faithful God. that declare to the world that Yahweh is worthy of your worship. You say, how can I I be involved in ministry? How can I somehow be involved in in testifying and witness to, to the world around me if I'm going through this trial? David says, I can tell you one way. (laughs) You praise God in the midst of that trial. And when you praise God in the midst of that trial, not only are you praising God, which is a good thing, but you're also declaring to the world that you are in the grip of the creator of the universe. And although what you're experiencing is terrible, you have hope, confidence, and assurance in your majestic and glorious God. The Lord told the Apostle Paul about what he that he called his thorn in the flesh, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. And how does Paul respond? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, when, when I am weak, that I'm strong. And we, we could add in there my, my suffering, my disease, my struggle, my loss, my financial ruin, whatever it might be. I'm not denying the pain and the struggle and the suffering of those things, but what we're saying is because we are royal citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we can turn to God in praise 
in those times of darkness, trial, and suffering. And that declares to a world that what we are is real and who our God is magnificent. Can you boast in your weakness? Secondly, it is through the heartfelt singing of songs that we speak to one another and declare our delight in the majesty of God. When you're going through a trial and you come to church and you look up to the screen and you see the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Do you realize that when you're seeing that and when you're saying that, you are preaching that to yourself? But you're also declaring it to those that are around you who need to hear the confidence and the assurance of brothers and sisters who are also going through various trials. And so you continue to sing, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Now, friends, when we, we say, hey, let's start with praise, we're not trying to stir up emotions. We're not trying to manipulate a crowd. We're trying to draw our attention to give God the, the, the centrality of our focus so that we can declare to Him who He is and what He has done for us and how much we are in awe of Him because of it. And when we do that to Him, we're declaring to those around us that that is what we believe, that He's the one that we're holding on to. It is through the heartfelt singing of songs that we speak to one another and declare our delight in the majesty of God. So friends, when it's time to sing, sing <laughs> for your own soul, but also for those who are there with you. Third, it is only through the suffering of Christ on the cross that foes, enemies, or avengers can become babies and infants in God's kingdom that declare the majesty of God. You realize you were once a foe, an enemy, and an avenger. And God has graduated you through his gospel to be an infant and a baby in your weakness, in your own insignificance to declare his glory. Now, the way of salvation, friends, is the way of humility and weakness, not of boasting, not of pride. We have nothing to boast about. We've brought nothing to the table. All our works is filthy rags, but Jesus, he's done it all. He's made a way through his sacrifice on the cross. He paid for our sins through his substitutionary death on the cross. In other words, he, Jesus, took our place and bore our sins when we fully deserve to be the recipient of the Father's wrath. And like infants and babies, we are totally dependent on what Christ has done for us and we can contribute nothing. You ever try to dress an infant? They don't say, oh, here's my arm. No, you have to fight for the arm and make sure that it wiggles in to where it needs to be. Why? That infant is totally dependent on the one who's caring for that infant. This is the picture of us in this context. When it comes to our salvation, there's nothing that we contribute. God just says, all right, put your arm through here. <laughs> I'm going to snap you up here. I'm going to carry you from here to here. This is, this is all God's doing. We are crowned with glory and honor 
only because the Godhead chooses to do so. And so together with David, we say, the Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, help us today to consider man in light of you. We're insignificant, we're small. Yet you have crowned us with glory and honor. And you've reconciled us through your son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we have much to praise you for. You are our personal covenant worthy God. And Lord, we praise You. We praise You, Lord, because You can take us who at one time were enemies. and You can make us, Lord, not just people who have come into, I don't want to say a category of making it, but Lord, You've brought us in as friends, as family, as sons and daughters. It's only through You, Lord. And Lord, You deserve all of our praise. And Lord, we delight in the majesty and the glory of your name. And we declare it, Lord, wherever we go across this world. In your precious name, amen.